Good morning. Uh, my name is Steve. Just waiting for that. One guy, and he's paid to say it. Uh, anyway, welcome. Glad, glad you're here. In 1989, I'm going to talk to a few of you older people in the room. Uh, if you're over 40, you may remember this. In 1989, the Vikings made a blockbuster trade. And I distinctly, I've been a Viking fan uh, since the uh, eighth day of creation. And so uh, uh, they made a big trade. And it was uh, Herschel Walker, who at that time played for the Dallas Cowboys. And they made this trade actually in, the, in October. So it wasn't even like an off-season thing. It was in the middle of the season. And I remember thinking, what are they doing? What are they, you know, whenever you make these kind of big trades, they're super risky, right? And so um, they make this trade for Herschel Walker in, in October of 1989. And I am not a believer in the trade. <clears throat> I'm thinking, what are we doing? And then his first game hits. This is the Los Angeles Times. I won't read it, but I'll describe what happens. It is, he only had two days of practice. So they were only going to use him on kickoff and punts and that kind of thing where it wasn't really a big deal to figure out the offense. And so the first time he touches the ball, he's four yards deep in the end zone. You think he's going to take a knee. He doesn't. He jets out 51 yards, except it was a penalty, so they called it back, all right? So, but he still went 51 yards. So Jerry Burns, the, the coach at that time, says, huh, well, how difficult can it be to hand a guy a ball, <laughs> right? So about... With uh, 12, they're about three, four minutes into the game, and they say, put Herschel in. Let's just give him the ball. He, first time he touches the ball, the first time he touches the ball, he breaks about four or five tackles, goes 47 yards, throws a shoe way up in the air in the middle of it, one guy trying to tackle him, and he just keeps going. And I'm thinking, greatest trade ever. In fact... In fact, the, someone from Dallas, one of their writers, wrote that the Vikings flat out fleeced them. <laughs> they fleeced us. Uh-huh. Let's just look at this trade now and with history's perspective. This is the coach and the owner, minus Herschel Walker, plus 18 players and draft picks equals three Super Bowl rings. Uh-huh. What did we get in that? Nothing. 10 years of trying to rebuild a program, possibly known as the worst trade in Vikings or even all of NFL history was the Herschel Walker trade. He ends up leave, leaving our team after a couple of years. Anyway, it was horrible, horrible trade. We're in a series right now in the, in the you're like, what? Okay. Um, I just wanted to get that off my chest. It's been bothering me since 1989. We're in a series right now in the book of Romans. We're in the first section of it, which will take us up till about summertime, called The Good News, uh, in, in chapters one and three. We're gonna read this week uh, from Romans chapter one, verses 18 to 25. So we're gonna hone in. If you don't mind, and if you're able, why don't you stand? We'll read this passage together. Here we go. Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkening. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You may be seated. I had this memorized in a different version, so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, nah. So it's really hard to read it uh, this way. Uh, as Pastor Davis said last week in his message, we're spending four weeks in this particular uh, section of Scripture. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 32. Uh, it's just, it's really, really rich section. So there's four weeks. Last week, Pastor Davis focused in on wrath. Honestly, and I'm not saying this uh, just because I work here, that's the best sermon on wrath I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and so, yeah, you, I, you, oh, it's just like, don't tell them that, they'll get a big head. But they uh, really have great, if I would encourage you, and I love this definition, fueled and funded by his love, wrath is God's consistent opposition to evil. Because God is love, therefore, Evil is something he opposes consistent, consistently and angrily, and that's wrath. Just a lot of really, really great things in the message. I highly encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, to listen to it online. This week, we're looking at the second week called The Great Exchange. And if you don't remember anything else, it's really honing in on, I read it in context, uh, but I, the, the idea, the big idea, I'll just give it to you right up front, is verse 25, the last verse that we read, which says, and again, I have this memorized in a different translation. So because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So there's this, this great exchange that takes place. And to me, verse 25 is the best definition of sin in the Bible. We often think of like sin as the breaking of a commandment, but what's really underneath all this, and we'll see this even in the way the Old Testament is put together, uh, is that it's, it's this exchange of truth of God for lies, and it's this exchange for creator for creation, okay? So that's where we're kind of going. And just to let you know kind of how we're going to get there, I think this is how we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to go and we're just going to, since this is an exchange, we just got to do some basic questions. What do they, and by the way, the word they is in the passage. It's constantly used as they. So Paul's talking about someone, and if you're wondering, why does he use the word they? The readers would have also wondered that in the beginning, and he's going to expand on that as time goes on. Who are the they? Uh, who's he referring to? And we won't, we'll, we'll let the passage, uh, as we move further in Romans, kind of kind of open that up. <clears throat> what do they give? What do they get? How or what's the manner in how this takes place? And then is there any take backs on this one? Is this an exchange that we can, <laughs> can undo? Because this is not a good idea. So that's the basic idea. Whenever you're doing a trade, right? It's just to be overly simple here. You have what you give and what you get. 
and that little, that little whatever that thingy is, the little Amazon-y kind of thingy, whatever, uh, that is meaning the manner in which the trade takes place. So those are the three elements here. So you have something, I have something, you want what I have, I want what you have, we make a trade somehow. Could be finances, uh, it could be property, it could be a variety of things, right? That's, that's overly simple. So let's just start with what's, what's it that they, in this passage, are giving up? What's on the table here? What's the Herschel Walker on the one end, right? I guess that's what we got. We got misery is what we ended up getting, but that's another, I'm not gonna keep going on that. Okay, so what did they, what I wanna do, and for each one of these, for the first three at least, I'm gonna go right back through the passage. So we'll look at all three slides of the passage and say, what is it that they gave up? What is it that they got? And what's the manner in which? So if we look here, what did they give up? Here's what it says they gave up. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them for his invisible attributes, this is, this is quintessential Paul, by the way. For his invisible attributes, he says, namely, two things, eternal power and divine nature. Not everything about God is known just by looking at nature. But you see, in a sense, that who, what, what, if I look at nature, I see something in the depths of my heart that shows that wh whoever did this is extremely powerful, and whoever did this is other than me. He's other, he's divine, he's, he's different, right? Those two attributes, not everything, but his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Invisible attributes, clearly seen, clearly perceived. That's, that's Paul, he loves to do that. They're invisible, means what? Can't see them, oh, but they're clearly seen, right? And you're wondering, how does this guy keep a job, right? But he did. He's making you really think about this because it's, they're invisible to the eye, but they're not to the heart. They're clearly seen and they're there ever since the creation of the world. Now, if you're doing the hope devotion uh, plan, if, you, if you're on that thing, we read through Psalms. And uh, just, just recently, we just hit a couple of these. Well, I think we're tomorrow supposed to read this one, but I couldn't resist. Uh, is Psalm 19.1 says... The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens scream the glory of God. You look up at the heavens and it says to you, eternal power, divine nature. It just screams it to you. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Really? When's the last time you heard like stars and planets like saying anything? Uh-uh. Psalmist is saying, they scream to you. Night after night, they reveal this knowledge of who God is. So much so that if you back up five psalms in Psalm 14, David wrote this psalm and he opens the psalm by saying, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now you might, might be going, well, wait a minute here now, uh, David. I know some atheists. They're very smart people. They're not fools. And what David and what Paul are saying here is, no, no, that's not, I'm not talking about that kind of smart. I'm saying though that there's something in you that knows that you know that there's a God. It's just there. It's something that is deep within you. It is clouded because we live in a fallen world, no doubt, but it's just there. And here, here's, I've been doing this, I've been a professional Christian since 1987, okay? Uh, you people have to be good for nothing, right? But I get paid to be good. But 
So, uh, <laughs> Cor's like, don't laugh. Don't encourage him. He'll lose it. The, in all of those years, I have never once convinced anyone that there's a God. Now, I'm not saying some of the, you know, if you go through apologetics and there's all these proofs for God, that's great. They're there. It shows that, it, that God, that the existence of a God does not make not sense. Yeah, I said that right. In other words, it does make sense to believe in a God, but, but that's not ultimately where the battle's won. It's just something where people say, I just know there's a God. I just, I just, wow, right? And that's what Paul's getting at here is this knowledge that you have that's there. It's just given. It's, it's a presupposition, so to speak. He goes on. What else did they give up in the passage? They knew God. They knew God like this. But they drop it. They give it away. And then it says they exchange something. We'll get into the word exchange there later because that's the transaction. That's how it, the manner in which it happens. The glory of the immortal God and they give up truth, and they give up the creator. That's what they're giving up. That's what's on the table in one end of the trade, okay? Um, in his book, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, In Christ Alone, talks about this exchange that takes place, and he says this. He says, the gospel of Romans can be summarized in one word, exchange. That's an interesting way to to put it, Paul's gospel is the story of a series of exchanges. The first exchange is described in uh, chapters 1, 18 to 32, the very section we're spending four weeks in. <clears throat> no, uh, knowing the clearly revealed creator God who has displayed his glory in the universe he has made, humanity has exchanged the, the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Romans 1, 23 and 25. Thus, communion with God was exchanged for wrath by God. So, that's what you give. That's what they give. What do they get? What's the, you know, there's something else you want. You want to change that. What is it? Let's see what they get. It says they get wrath. Okay. Oh, ouch. <laughs> wrath of God is revealed. All right, so that's one thing. It says now that they have zero excuse and I think Paul's referring here to even on Judgment Day, saying, whoa, 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 I didn't know. No, no, you knew. You knew. You knew enough. Divine power and eternal nature, excuse me, divine nature and eternal power. You knew enough, and you pushed that away, they, whoever they are. They're, they gave up their opportunities for excuse. It says here that they, uh, uh, they're getting, they become futile in their thinking. So futile thinking. Ah, oh, this is so futile. That's what, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They got dark hearts out of the deal. Okay. <laughs> and they also get, they become fools. And instead of this glory of who God is, they go and they worship images. They worship images of things that they just made. And then they back off and they say, there's your God. There's a great uh, <clears throat> prophecy about this where God just kind of says, let's just think about this, found in Jeremiah chapter 20. And it says, here you have this craftsman, and he's cold. And so he takes some wood, and he cuts it up, and he burns a fire. And then the other half of it, he makes a god out of it. And, 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 and the prophet, it backs off, and he says, just, just, I don't know, let's just think about this for a second. 
Half of it I cut up and I'm warming myself by, used it for fuel. The other half I made a God? Does that make sense to anybody? That's what he's basically saying. And that's what you get. You, you, you did that. Therefore, you're going to be given over to it. Go ahead. Keep, keep going that way. You get a lie and you get to worship creation, the creature, creation rather than creator. It's like, this is, a, this is worse than the Herschel Walker trait, right? This is a horrible trait. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say it this way. He says, and God's wrath is not for, far off in the future. It is, a, it is invasive in a contemporary way. Men and women give God up and flaunt their pretended autonomy in his face. They think we despise his laws and break them freely, yet no threatened thunderbolt of judgment touches us. In fact, however, they are judiciously blinded and hardened. They cannot see that the conscious hardening and body-destroying effects of the rebellion are the judgment of God. His judgments are righteous. If we will have ungodliness, then the punishment will come through the very instrument, instruments of our crime against him. In the end, we've exchanged the light of his presence for present inner darkness and future outer darkness. It's kind of like this. Say you do a road trip. You go all the way out to Colorado. I love mountains, man. Mountains are my thing. I don't know what your thing is. My wife's thing is oceans. Mine are mountains. Whatever your thing is. My thing is mountains, so we're going to use that. So you go all the way and you see, you see it majestic, awesome mountain, right? And you're, you're, you're driving up to it, but if you're, you know, when you're driving in your, if you have a car, uh, you have a windshield, so you really can't see the mountain. So, so you, you need to get out of the car, right? And so you, you drive up to the mountains and you get right by the mountain and you get out of the car and instead of looking at the mountain, you turn around and you say to everybody, whoa, would you look at the shadow? Would you look at the shadow that whatever's behind me is making? And everybody says, hey, dude, turn around and look at the mountain. No, 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 no. This shadow, you ever seen anything like that before? It's amazing. I'm ready to go home. Right? That's what's going on here. You're looking at the shadow and you're saying, that satisfies me. And God is saying, hello, turn around over here. That's exactly what's happening in this exchange. Now, let's look at the manner. What's the manner in which this takes place? First thing it says here, this knowledge that we have of God that is given to us by God by just being in creation, it says that we suppress that. Suppress is an active word. It's not a it's not a word that's passive. I, I do something. I, I like to use the analogy of thinking like a, a beach ball and you're holding it down in a pool, you know? You're suppressing something. You're pushing it away. You suppress this. Secondly, it says we don't honor him. Although they knew God, they don't honor him as God. And we don't give him thanks. So if you just think about something... When someone gives you something and you respond with thank you, it's a way of humbling yourself under that person. But if you don't do that, if you're not in an in attitude with that towards God, you're like saying, well, we're, 
Maybe I'm above you, or at least, maybe I'm just kind of equal. We're homies, you know? But giving him thanks puts him in this order and honoring him there. You don't, they don't do that. That's the manner. And then the big word. The big word here is the word exchange. You make a trade. You have this, I have this, and we're gonna exchange it. And Paul, in his, I think, just brilliance right here, he describes what is that that's taking place? What is this exchange? And it says it's you're going to worship and serve, okay? Uh, I know there's not many Bob Dylan fans here, but I'll pray for you. But the, uh, the old Dylan song, right? You gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. I mean, you, you're going to serve something. You're going to worship something. Your heart was created by God to worship something. And Paul says here, yep. You're gonna go to creation. You're gonna go to other creation, whatever that might be. Something in creation, could be idolatry the way it was here. It could be whatever, but there's this exchange that's taking place and it's not just a, a, a mental trait, it's a heartfelt, worshipful service. This is the thing that will define me kind of trait. It's not gonna be God anymore. It's gonna be fill in the blank. Whatever it is, something in creation. Could be good things. Careers, schooling, relationships, family, etc. Could be bad things, right? Drug, sex, rock and roll, right? Whatever. <laughs> rock and roll's great. But the, the uh, well, and sex is great too in the right, anyway. The, um, uh, and drugs have their place, I guess, you know, in the right way. <laughs> Forget that I'm talking. The, uh, but the, this heart change, the exchange is actually an orientation where I say, God, I'm now suppressing, pushing you away. I'm not gonna honor you. I'm not gonna thank you. I'm gonna go towards microphone and I'm gonna worship microphone. That is gonna be my thing, to turn. Now, the question you just gotta ask yourself is, why, right? Why in the world would you do that? If you're created by God to best run, you know, like a car runs on gasoline or yeah, EV or whatever you run on these days, you're, you, you run on that as your We're designed by God to run on him as our worship source. Why in the world would you not do that? Now, again, I'm, I keep advertising this, but it just keeps coming up because I keep reading it. If you're uh, in the Hope Devotions, you've been reading through Exodus since the beginning of January. Exodus is a great case study in here. So let's take a look at this little case study, okay? Great case study in why, all right? So if, you're, if you've been reading and you know anything about, or maybe just seen the movie or multiple movies about Exodus, it's the people of Israel are in bondage and uh, Moses comes to deliver them, right? Moses comes in the form of Charlton Heston here in the movies, the very famous one, let my people go, right? Pharaoh won't let them go. So there's all these plagues, 10 plagues that come. And finally, Pharaoh lets him go. Then Pharaoh changes his mind. I don't think so. I think we'll follow him into the desert. We'll kill them all. And while they are crossing the Red Sea, as the Red Sea does something Red Seas don't do, Red Sea parts. There's dry ground down there, right? And the Red Sea parts, and the people are walking through. 
I know because I saw the movie. I actually had to go to Universal Studios where we get to, if you ever do that, you can go through where the thing. Anyway, the, um, and uh, so they walk through and now all of a sudden, Pharaoh starts chasing them. It's like, oh no, no. And whoo, Red Sea comes back and drowns them all, right? They're standing on the other side watching this incredible thing happen. And then they, they go just a, a couple, not even a couple chapters, a few verses, and they start complaining, right? Grumbling is the word you, you read often. Grumble here, grumble there. They start, this whole group of people starts grumbling towards Moses. But finally, they make their way through, and they make it to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, in chapter 19, let me just read this to you what happens. It says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain. Got a mountain, you got thunder and lightning, thick cloud, and a very large trumpet blast. Boop, right? Everyone in the camp trembles. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, right to the edge. He's already had to put limits here. If you go into Exodus 19, it's very explicit. These are gonna be the limits. They go right there, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Because the Lord God descended on it in fire. The smoke is just billowing out of this thing. Like a furnace. And the whole mountain is trembling. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answers him. He's going to come out and he's going to speak what we would call the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Let me just read the first two. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Rule number one, no other gods before me. Two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Okay, he's gonna lift other ones. Don't steal, don't murder, on and on, right? Those are the first two. In fact, Martin Luther would argue that there really is only one command, and it's the first command. Here's, here's what Martin Luther said about it. He says, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that, believe in that one with your whole heart. As I've often said, it is, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. Conversely, where your trust is false and wrong, there you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that is really your God. What do you really rely on? So Martin Luther, I think, very correctly, said, there's really only one command in the Bible. You shall have no other gods before me. The rest are details about how that happens. That's how he would argue. Okay, so let's keep going on here. Uh, now, when the people saw, so they get all these, they get the commands and all that, and we skip down to verse 19, and it says, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. You're just freaking out, right? They stay at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance 
while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was, okay? So Moses now goes up into that cloud and the smoke and everything, all right? Now, when he goes up there, he's up, up there for a while, and God is giving him a whole bunch more commands and different things. If we fast forward in the story here to chapter 24, God, uh, Moses goes down, and he, told, he tells the people all what they've received from the Lord so far. And again, this smoke and light show is going on like crazy. And then they respond with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Dude, of course we're going to do it. Look at this, right? And then he writes the things down and you know, he reads it again in verse 7 and he says, they respond, we'll do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, yeah, right. That's, then Moses goes back up. It says, when Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up onto the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain, up on the mountaintop, 40 days and 40 nights, Okay? So he's up there and God is speaking directly with him, giving him more on the laws, different things that they're supposed to govern with. And that's from chapter 24 through 31. He's up there for 40 days. And we get to chapter 32. 40 days. Light show going on. Thunder, lightning, everything. It's just this consuming fire. There, there. Moses went up and it's 40 days. Okay, here we go. When the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain... They gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. Now, it's important you pay attention here. I know you've been sleeping now, but just for a moment, just pay attention. He took what they handed him and made them, now if you read this right, he, Aaron, Aaron made it into an idol in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Who fashioned it? Aaron, right? We're all clear? It's very clear, right? Okay, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Worship, teaching, fellowship. What are you talking about? Are you kidding me? You can see the light show that just happened. You went through the Red Sea. There was a lot of things in there between there. Uh, you gotta be kidding me. What are you thinking? You made this thing and you just took your earrings off. You just melted it. It just happened right in front of you. And somehow that is the God that previously brought you out. Which, you know, you just made it. It doesn't make any sense, right? So Moses comes down and is like, what is up? I'm gone for 40 days and 40 nights and what? Right? And so he looks at Aaron and asks the logical question. What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? And listen with all of your heart to this answer. He says, don't be angry with me, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, 
whoever has any gold or jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> and that, that's it. Somehow Moses doesn't even follow up with it because that's the stupidest thing he's ever heard. <laughs> Here's the deal. Why? It, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, sin is the definition of nonsense. It makes no sense. Why? Because it's a lie. That calf didn't even exist when you came out of the Red Sea, but somehow it's your God. That's right, that this is the one. Do you hear yourself? Yes, I do. It's a calf with the golden calf. I know because it's gold. It doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't matter because they and we keep buying it. We just keep buying it. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, if you've uh, struggled with alcohol and you've been part of AA, you know they got some great phrases. I love some of their little quips they have. One of my very favorites is, when a person gets charged with a DUI, their first or second offense, instead of just filling up the jails, they tell them you can go to jail for 90 days or whatever, or you can register for an approved uh, sobriety program that will help you with this. Many people choose that option, and they have to go six months to some sobriety program. And so often they choose Alcoholics Anonymous, and being part of Alcoholics Anonymous, you get a sponsor. You get a person who's a mentor, a person you can talk to. You have to go to so many meetings a week and the whole thing, and you go, right? And so they're going along, and then they, uh, un invariably, when the six-month period or whatever, however long the, the sentence was, you had to go, on that day, they call the sponsor and they say this, hey, listen, I want to thank you. It's been great, um, but my time is done. Uh, I got this now. I'm, I'm good. I can handle this. And the wise sponsor, mentor person says one of the great AA lines. He says, sure, sure, but just to let you know, your best thinking on your own got you here. <laughs> your best thinking got you into AA on your own. But yeah, you go ahead. You have fun with that. It doesn't make any sense. Sin makes no sense. The exchange makes absolutely no sense. And yet we keep going after it. In fact, we're insatiable for it. John Calvin wrote it this way. He said, from this we may gather that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. As it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance, it conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. And we just keep buying. And we just keep buying. Surely it will work this time. So, you look at this exchange thing and you go, uh, uh, wait a minute. That's a bad, this is a bad trade. Can we, can, can we, 
can we get our draft picks back and you take Herschel Walker back? Can we, is there a back here? When we were kids, you know, you had trade, you had marbles or whatever you were trading or playing cards. We had uh, baseball cards, that kind of thing. And you, you, I remember making trades with kids in the morning and by lunch, I was like, what am I doing? And then I'd come back and say, is there, is there any, is there any backs here? And you got the, always got, right? No backs, no backs. I have this reoccurring dream. Happens to me all the time. I have lived, there's a picture of my house. And it's amazing. I do not know how Google did this. Actually did it, like we have some event going on. That's my son's car, my other son's car, and my truck. It's like, and no other cars, cars on the whole street. I don't, I don't know how that worked. But anyway, that's my house. And I've, I've lived in my house longer than anywhere else. 32 years we've been in that house. Love, we've done a ton of remodeling. I have one room that I haven't remodeled. I lived in this house long enough that a bathroom that I built on the second floor, I'm already ready to remodel. That's how when you live in a place long enough that you're doing your own demo work, you know you've lived there long enough. I love our house. It's, I walk in the door, it just feels like home. And I have this reoccurring dream that for some dumb reason I sell the house. And I remember, you know, it's like, we're moving out and I'm just like, the new owners are coming in, nice family and whole thing. But it's like, hey, can I, could we maybe not do this? And they're like, no, you, no, we're moving in, bro. And you know, sorry. And I'm just out. And this dream, I have nowhere to live either. It's like, okay. <laughs> and it's like, this was stupid. Like, what am I thinking here, right? And, I, and I, I've lost this affection I have for our house, right? And the sense that the book of Romans wants to get you at at this moment as we read it through is the very sense of the end of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where Willy Wonka says, you get nothing, you lose, good day, sir. Now, this is really a dire message, right? So I'm not gonna, the book of Romans is gonna get better as we get, but it's gonna get worse first. I'm not gonna lie. But there's more to it here. This exchange that happens this great exchange is actually followed up in the Bible by what I call the greatest exchange of all time. That'd be the geot, if you're trying to do a, a goat thing or geot, right? The greatest exchange of all time. And the, the, it's followed up by the worst trade of all time. And the reality of the gospel message is you will not appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ until you understand that you are in a trade you cannot possibly get out of, that there is absolutely no hope. You can't just try harder. You can't get it back. You cannot do it. Then you're ready to understand the great exchange, the greatest exchange that ever happened. It's best, I think, best illustrated in Second uh, Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin, who had never once exchanged the glory of God, never once exchanged it, never once uh, exchanged truth for a lie, never once served and, and worshiped created things rather than the creator, never once. And yet, he makes a trade. He makes a trade. So two ways to look at it. Worst possible trade ever. What does he get? Our sin. What does Jesus get? The wrath of God that was destined for us, poured upon him. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He takes that so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus does it. We don't do it. There is no backs. It is a gift. He grants you a gift. And when you understand how hopeless it is, it shows you how sweet this table is because it represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ who did not have to. And he, he comes in and takes the trade of himself for us. So in one way, it's the worst ever trade. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. We get to be made right with God, right? But in another way, it's the best possible because God gets to show off his love, his justice, and his mercy, and he gets to be declared the most glorious thing in all the universe. Another way Paul likes to describe it is this. He says in Galatians 4, he says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. The word sons used there to describe like being an heir of something. The sons in that culture were given, given the, 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 the wealth. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father, Daddy. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, but God's child. And since you're a child, God has made you also an heir. The greatest exchange ever is his glory for all of my shame, all of my, all of my trades that were bad, all of that. That is the greatest exchange of all time. Let me close this message. We're gonna to move to a time of communion. Love to have you take part in communion. We keep the communion tables for anyone who acknowledges that they themselves on their own have worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, but they need a savior. If that's you, and whether it's you in the last 10 minutes, you are welcome to these tables. You can, if, you, if you've never come to Jesus Christ today, you can just say to him, Jesus, I take you as my substitute. I take you as the great exchange. I take you as the one, because on my own, I can't do this. There's tables here, gluten-free down front and in the back as well. We'd love to have you. Uh, there's people who'd love to pray for you about anything as well. While you're coming, I have a couple questions for you to ponder. First, uh, do you feel the futility of the idols you've pursued? Do you feel them? And even currently, do you feel the futility of those things? And secondly, are you letting the, the, the greatest change of all time ultimately transform you? Because he is the hero. Jesus is the hero in everything. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, you, you are amazing. And it's... Uh, it's imperative upon us that we understand the bad news so that we can grasp the good news, that it's actually a gift of grace that we see how sinful we are, that on our own, we just chase idols, that our hearts are actually idol factories. And so, Father, I pray for every single person here this morning that you just grant us a gift and that we'd see that, that it would leave us feeling completely helpless and hopeless and then we'd realize that with a capital H, you are our help, you are our hope. And we would therefore once again be renewed by how great you are. I pray for whatever we're going through this week, and I know there's a lot of cares and concerns, 
Um, but that would be the thing that would drive us. That you, that you have bore our sin. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just move in our hearts so that we're different people because of that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and respond with us.